Well, how many of you all have ever said to yourself, I know what the Bible says, but how does that apply to me? Anybody ever ask that question? Well, honestly, I hope every one of you have asked that question because it's a great question to ask. Our goal as we open up God's Word is not to just gain knowledge. It's to grow in our understanding so that we learn how to apply that knowledge to our life so that it impacts how we live. And so it's a great question to ask. How does it apply to me? And and each week when we look at God's Word, we kind of go into it with that perspective because we are looking at something written at least 2,000 years ago within a very different culture and towards a very different context. And in that, we are trying to discern what is the truth that I hear and how does it apply to my life today? As I say that, may sound daunting, but it's really not difficult. Because God's word and the way he inspired it was never intended to be confusing or hard to understand. It's not like we're trying to crack some code or, or solve some mystery. But God's word is intended for the masses. It's intended to be understood by all, young and old. And understood in a way that we can apply it to our lives. This morning, I think we have a a unique opportunity to see how Paul is going to demonstrate what it looks like to to take a truth of God's Word written in one context and then take that very same truth and apply it to a different context without in any way compromising the integrity of that original truth. The point that we want to look at is how This is a goal that we should have every time we go into God's Word. How does what he says there apply to my life now? And I want you to pay particular attention as we look at this passage, how how Paul keeps the sword sharp. What I mean by that, you know, when we looked at Ephesians and the armor that we are intended to put on, it talked about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you may have heard the saying before that a, a sharp knife is the safest knife. And that's true because a sharp knife demands your respect, right? You don't use it in a way that it was not intended to. You don't cut towards yourself. You're careful to use it just as it was intended. A sharp knife is a safe knife. Well, in the same way, I think that's the way Paul treats God's word. He keeps the sword sharp. He treats it with respect. He always makes sure to protect the original intent as he applies it to each circumstance so that it always protects what it was originally intended to be. And so when we go into God's word, our desire should be the very same thing. And we're going to see a beautiful picture of what that looks like through Paul this morning. So before we do that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you, we know that really there are some challenging truths in our passage today. But those truths are intended to be... uh, blessings to our life, to bring instruction, guidance for the experience of your goodness built into your design. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, help us to discern the truth of what you intended to be applied to our lives today. And I pray that each of us can walk through that together and walk out of here having been transformed by the truth of your word. So, Father, that's our prayer. Would you guide us and direct us by the work of your Spirit? We 
pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going to pick up where we left off last. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we will begin reading in verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says, But to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. Now, as we get started in our passage, we need to be reminded that last week when we looked at our passage, Paul had given a concession. Remember that? Look at verse 6 again. He says, but I say, but this I say by way of concession, not a command. And then he goes on in verse 7 to give his opinion of the value of being single. He had just spoken about the, the sanctity of marriage and the goodness built into to God's design. But at the same time, he elevated the gift of being single of, to be of equal value and purpose in God's eyes. And, and from his perspective, it was good. But he's not commanding everybody to be single. Nor is he commanding everybody to be married. He's saying, live in the way God has gifted you. But now when he comes into verse 10, it's clear that He's no longer speaking based on his own opinion. This is not a continuation of the concession. In fact, there's a very dramatic shift in his tone. He says there, I give you instruction. More literally, I order you by God's authority. It's explicit. It's clear. This is no longer his opinion. This is according to the Lord's command. And then he explains what that is in verse 10 there. It says, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. Paul is speaking about marriage and divorce. And let me just say here that he's not giving a dissertation on the topic. So he's not going to here expound all the possible scenarios. He's going to speak to a specific context. He's going to take a biblical truth, which he's already told us was a commandment of the Lord. And he's going to take that truth and then apply it to a very specific situation in the Corinthian church. Now, we know that both or Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus' words as they relate to marriage and divorce. They each are an echo of the other. So we're going to begin by looking at one of those, Matthew chapter 19. If you'll go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 3. This, I believe, is what Paul means when he's referencing the Lord's command, because you're going to see an echo of what he says in verse 10 and 11 in this passage. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. It says, Some Pharisees came to him, testing him. In saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? The first thing I want you to notice in this one verse is that when the Pharisees came to Jesus, it wasn't a sincere question. It's clear, it was a test. And I think the test is to see if Jesus' list lines up with their list. Because what they're wanting to know is uh, the possible reasons for divorce. They were looking for a way out of the marriage relationship. But I want you to notice that Jesus emphasizes the importance of staying in. Look at how he responds in verse 4. And he answered and said, 
Have you not read that he created them from the beginning, created, uh, made them male and female, and said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. See, Jesus recognizes their intent, but he is unwilling to take the bait. Their question diminishes the value of covenant love. And so Jesus answers by elevating the sanctity of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. See, they want to talk about exclusions. And Jesus is emphasizing permanence. Verse 6 makes it clear. He says, consequently, there are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The point he's making here is that God never created marriage with divorce in mind. It wasn't an option because what he put together, he intended to stay together. That is a fundamental truth of God's design within the marriage relationship. And that's how Jesus responds. Now look at verse 7. They, being the Pharisees, said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. <laughs> the Pharisees want to know, well, if marriage is supposed to be so permanent, then why did Moses give a command to divorce? Jesus' response begins with the idea that Moses never gave a command to divorce. You misunderstood. Jesus is clarifying. As Paul might say, he's giving concession. Look again at verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart. Now, whose heart is hard? Look closely at the passage. Verse 8. Whose heart is hard? It's the one who's initiating the divorce. That's whose heart is hard. And if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, you're going to see that the, the law was not written to give an allowance for divorce. Instead, it was written in order to require a certificate in that divorce. And that's very important. Because that certificate was a means by which God protected the woman who was sent away by a hard-hearted man. The law did not give an allowance for divorce. It gave a requirement for the certificate. It, it was a necessary means to protect the woman who otherwise would have been considered unclean, immoral, outcast from the community. But it was God's way of protecting the woman to say no. She was sent away because of a hard heart. And she is a part of your community, so you love her. You care for her. She is one of your own. That was the purpose of the law. See, a hard heart is what caused the divorce. God came in as a result of that and protected the woman by requiring the certificate. Now look at verse 9. 
It says, then I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Jesus addresses an issue connected to this law, but not in any way providing an exclusion criteria to get out of the marriage relationship. Again, look closely. He's going back to the person who initiates the divorce. And he makes it clear that they are committing adultery if they remarry after the divorce that is not based on the sin of unrepentant immorality. And that's important. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's essentially abolishing no-fault divorce. He's prohibiting any idea of divorce and remarriage based upon irreconcilable differences. The one flesh union of immorality is the single example that he gives as something that defiles defiles the one flesh union of marriage. And it's easy to understand why. Because you cannot be one flesh with two people. Now, how many of us hear this and think, wow, it's kind of heavy, isn't it? Those words feel strong. Look at verse 10. Notice that the disciples had the exact same response. And they said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry He goes on and says, he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to him it has been given. And he gives an illustration, which I'll explain. He says, for there are eunuchs who were born this way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There were also eunuchs who were made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. The disciples heard what Jesus said, like we did this morning, and they had a similar response that I think probably most of us do when we hear Jesus' words and think, wow, then it may be best not to get married at all. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't necessarily disagree. In fact, he goes on to explain, he says, he gives the illustration of the eunuch. Now, A eunuch from the Old Testament perspective is someone who was incapable of reproduction, of having offspring. And he explains that some are born that way. It could be a hereditary dysfunction of some sort. Some are made that way by men. Some choose to be that way because of a higher calling. He's using it to illustrate the point that that not everyone is born with the gift of being married. This is exactly what Paul said last week when we walked through this together. What did he say? He says, being married is a gift. Being single is a gift. And we should fulfill whatever way God has gifted us. And so don't just move into the covenant of marriage unless you're gifted to fulfill it. Because when God created marriage, he intended for that union to be permanent. Everything Paul says in verses 10 and 11 of our passage is intended to be an echo of this command from Jesus. Go back to our passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Let's read it again based on what we just read in Matthew. 
But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. And if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. Remember, neither Paul nor Jesus is intending to give a a dissertation on the topic of divorce. Instead, they are promoting God's design of the permanence of marriage. What he has joined together, let no one separate. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was thinking through this and preparing this week, I thought, like the Pharisees, we often get this wrong. Because how do we often come to this topic? We often are looking for the list of reasons why we can divorce. Isn't that true? Very often we're not looking at the reasons that we should stay married. We want to justify a way out instead of being convinced of the reason that we should stay in. And so I think God's word gives us great clarity to to understand his purpose and, and his desire And then to take that underlying truth and see how it might apply to our specific situation. And I think this is precisely what Paul does when he takes that command and then applies it to the situation that's in the Corinthian church. Let's look at what that is in verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, I want to be clear here that in the beginning of verse 12, when Paul says, the rest, to the rest I say, not I, the Lord, we're not moving again into the category of concession. This is not opinion. I believe what Paul is doing, he is taking a commandment of the Lord that originates with him, and then he's giving instructions based on that commandment to the Corinthian church. And what we need to understand about what he's saying here is that what he communicates is inspired by the Spirit. And therefore, no, any, no less authoritative than the words of Jesus himself. It is based on that same commitment to the sanctity of marriage. Jesus was answering a specific question in a specific context from a specific group who was testing him. Well, Paul takes the underlying truth of that response and then applies it to the Corinthian church. And so this is his application inspired by the Spirit, based on the truth of the command given by the Lord. Here's the likely scenario that he's speaking into. You see, when the gospel came to the Gentiles, in this case, the Gentiles who lived in Corinth, very often that message of the gospel was communicated to a household, mom, dad, kids, relatives. And it was not unusual for many in that household, if not all of them, to come to faith in Jesus Christ through the proclamation of that word. But there were those situations where one might have come to faith, a husband or a wife, when the other one didn't. And so the question is, does a believing spouse become defiled 
through a relationship with an unbelieving spouse. Remember, they're, they're new to this. This is a, a new faith. And so what they want to know is, should a Christian seek divorce in order to preserve the purity of their faith? It's a legitimate question. So Paul takes that truth spoken by Jesus, and he carries it into the Corinthian context. And that underlying truth is this. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage was intended for permanence. It's that same one flesh relationship regardless of the two parties that are involved. And like Jesus, Paul focuses on what God joined together. And and in no way is intending to justify a reason for a way out. He says, if your believing, unbelieving spouse consents to stay, then let them stay. Don't send them away. Do not divorce. Protect the integrity of the marriage relationship. And then he gives a reason why. Look at 14 again. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her husband. Let's be clear that being sanctified is not the same thing as being saved. Because as we will see in verse 16, Paul makes it clear that the unbeliever is still in need of salvation in coming to faith in Christ. But what Paul's statement does do is reveal that marriage has a transforming power built into its design. You cannot enter into marriage, whether Christian or not, and be unchanged by the person you're married to. It's built into its design. Marriage, by design, is a sanctifying tool. I mean, for those of you who are married, you know how this is true. You know how the marriage relationship reveals how selfish you really are. True? How much you have to to give up. How much it requires your humility. Because the marriage relationship is based on a redeeming love. It is a sanctifying tool. And that kind of takes us back to the point that I think Paul is going to carry over through most of the remainder of the letter. Back in chapter 6, verse 17, when he says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The point here is that the Christian's union with Christ introduces the power of the Holy Spirit into the marriage relationship. And for the sake of the unbeliever, do not take that influence away. Could it be a difficult situation? Sure. Is he promising a lifetime of happiness and and peace? Did he say it was going to be easy? Not necessarily. Paul's concern here is not the bliss of marriage. It's the salvation of a soul. He's exalting the unique power of the marriage relationship to reveal the love of Christ. The self-sacrificing, redeeming love of Christ. And before you go too far and start thinking critically about Paul, a single man, and say, well, what does he know? 
He's never been married before. If you want to, just jot down this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. You can start there. And just read the list of some of the things Paul endured for the sake of the gospel. And just see if that might not put some of the struggles in marriage into their proper perspective. The comment that Paul makes at the end of verse 14 is intended to strengthen his argument. Let me explain how that's the case. He says, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Again, Paul doesn't have salvation in view here. He's not saying that believing parents automatically make believing children. That's not true. But what he's pointing to is the fact that no one is claiming the need to disown their children in order to preserve the protection of their faith. He's telling them that the same devotion to to reveal that self-sacrificing love of Christ to your kids should should exist in your love for your spouse as well. And, And in the same way that you wouldn't send your kids away, then don't send your spouse away. Look at how he continues in verse 15. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether we will, you will save your husband? Or how will you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? See, even though Paul gives no grounds for the Christian to initiate divorce, he recognizes that it's possible that the unbelieving spouse could divorce the believing spouse. And in that case... He says that the Christian is no longer in bondage. They're free from that relationship. But let me be clear here. This is not a, whew, glad that's over. (laughs) This is not something that has been a hidden desire or even a subtle effort to encourage. God is no more pleased with this divorce than any divorce. But he does not condemn the believing spouse who did everything they could to protect the peaceful integrity of that marriage relationship. We know throughout Scripture that God always honors the peacemakers, right? Just think of the the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And what he's saying there is being a peacemaker is a family trait, a divine trait of God. Christians are peacemakers, not peace breakers. And so we should seek peace. We should seek actions that are consistent with God's heart of redeeming love. See, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. And when we are united with Christ, His peace should be evident in our life, no matter what those circumstances may be. Our goal should always be to reveal God's redeeming love. That is a mission from which we are never exempt. Whether in marriage or in divorce, Christians seek peace. So as we close, let me remind you again that when Paul wrote these words, just as Jesus spoke in his context, He wasn't given a dissertation on divorce. And what that means is, don't read this and think, well, what about this situation? And what about this situation? And and make your list. He's taking an underlying truth 
as a commandment of the Lord. And he's applying it specifically to the Corinthian context. And that truth is God created marriage with permanence in mind. No one has the right to separate what God has joined together. So instead of trying to define all the reasons that we should divorce, we should spend much more time trying to consider all the ways that we can continue to be married, to protect peace, to reveal God's redeeming love. And with that being said, let me just tell you that this instruction, in my view, I'm going to give concession here, (laughs) is not possible outside of the loving community of Christ. Because people who are in a difficult place in their marriage need others to come alongside them, to encourage them, to love them, to, to lift them up. So this is not a message to specific individuals and everybody else tune out. This is a message to the church at large. Because commitments like this can only be fulfilled within the context of a loving, life-giving family of God. And as a final reminder, and this may be the most important point of all, that special quality of covenant love that Jesus speaks to, that Paul then comes and revisits, is the love that has redeemed us. We are the unfaithful spouse. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We are the unfaithful spouse. We have indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But God, because of his self-sacrificing, redeeming love, has made us alive together with Christ. It's his faithfulness that has saved us in our unfaithfulness. It's his forgiveness that we didn't deserve. We are the unfaithful spouse, and we have been redeemed because he promises to never leave us, to never forsake us. He is faithful to love us no matter what. This morning, I want to close with a a short video that is going to speak of this love. It's in the context of a marriage relationship, but as you watch this, I want you to see this is really the story of Hosea, okay? The book of the Bible of the, the man's call to be faithful to his wife who is unfaithful to him. And God says, that love is my love for you, Israel. And we want to take that and translate it into where we are today and say, that love is his love for you, church. His faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness. It's a redeeming love. So listen to what this has to say. My friends tell me I'm torturing myself. It never gets easier. I thought I'd be used to it by now. That my heart would be calloused, hardened, immune to this torture. 
but it's not. It still hurts. After you, get you back. All is forgiven. All is forgotten. But each time it gets worse. It feels like death. My friends tell me I'm torturing myself. That it's not worth it. That you're not worth it. That I'm chasing a dream of what once was. without it being returned. I vowed till death do us part. But what if your love for me was dead a long time ago? Even still, I still choose you. True love can't be explained. It defies sanity. It defies logic. Love keeps no record of wrongs. No record of wrongs. I will love you without a record. I will forgive. I will pursue. I will bring you home. my love you cannot outrun my love you cannot escape my love I don't have a choice but I still choose you God's love is a redeeming love. And so for those of you who are not married, let me just remind you of the sanctity of that relationship. And as you consider entering into that relationship, you understand the covenant commitment that you're making to have a lifetime of love, in sickness and in health, good times and bad times. But whatever the spectrum may be, you'll be faithful. That's the covenant love you're committing to. Those of you who are in marriage, be reminded of the beauty of that love. Be reminded of what Paul has spoken to, of the goodness built into the design. And for those of you who are in a hard place, and it may be a scenario not unlike we see in our passage this morning, let me encourage you to be faithful to the commitment because you are bringing into that relationship the influence of a redeeming, self-sacrificing love that has the power 
to save a soul. And you demonstrate that love and your faithfulness to Christ. And he is sufficient. And church, you come alongside those who are having a hard time in their marriage. And you love them. And you encourage them because they cannot do it alone. And those of you who have been in a situation where there's been marriage and divorce, and you're calculating in your mind, how does this fit into where you're at? Let me speak to you. If you are married and you have made that commitment, regardless of what that past has been, you be faithful in that marriage that you're in. You be committed to serving and loving God in a way that honors him because he honors that commitment that you've made in that marriage that you're in. And you love your spouse and allow God to work through that marriage to allow it to become everything he created it to be because he's a redeeming God brings beauty from ashes. So experience the fullness of what he promises when we trust in him. It covers the full gamut. So wherever you are, seek God's best. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the way your word uh, is sharp. It is a sword. It pierces to the very marrow of our hearts. It very clearly exposes our weaknesses, our faults, our need for forgiveness and grace. And then right alongside that, you come in with the promise of hope that we find in you. Fulfillment and, and, and that comes through faith and trust in you. The way you redeem, that you don't hold records of wrong, but you start right now. In the moment when people come to you and say, today, in this moment, I want to be fully committed to following you and to be faithful to what you've called me to, expecting your provision and your goodness built within your design. So, Father, wherever people are at this morning, I pray that they come to you with that heart to trust you to give you an opportunity to invite you into their life, into their marriage, into their family, to bring that redemptive love that truly changes things. So that old is gone, new has come, that they become new creations in Christ. May that truth transform lives today and every day to the praise and glory of your name, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.